He who dies with the most toys wins. So goes the famous bumper sticker, the famous phrase. Do you think that's true? You might chuckle at the statement, but I wonder if some of us are functional materialists. Our actions betray the sentiments of our hearts. The bottom line is, for many of us, we want the most toys. We do. Well, others have come back and said, he who dies with the most toys still dies. That's true, too. It's true that one who dies never takes his toys with him. Never seen a hearse pulling a trailer behind it. No, your stuff always stays behind. The bumper sticker couldn't be more wrong. So this morning, as you sit back and assess your life, how important is money to you? How important is your stuff? How much of your thought life does your bank account control? Would you say that you have enough money? Oscar Wilde said, When I was young, I thought that maybe money was the most important thing in my life. But now that I'm old, I know it is. <laughs> Another man has said, Money is not the most important thing in the world. Love is. Fortunately, I love money. <laughs> no, I'd like to stand here and say that a love of money isn't a problem for us here in Dubai. That we are beyond it. We're above it here in Dubai. But the fact is that's not true. Many of us have come to Dubai to make lots of money. Many of us have come here to Dubai to make lots of money to send it back home to our family. Others have come here to make lots of money to store it up in our bank account and perhaps go home in a few years. Some of us have made more money here than we have ever dreamed of making. Some of us have lost more money here than we ever dreamed of losing. So a valid question for us to ask ourselves this morning is, do you love money? Does money control your heart? Are you greedy? It's an interesting question because nobody thinks they're greedy, do they? I mean, we might struggle with lust. That might be obvious. We might struggle with pride or arrogance. But I've never been in an accountability meeting when someone says, Dave, I have this burning sin. I really have to tell you about it. It's burdening my heart. It's hard to talk about, but okay, here goes. I'm struggling with greed. I love money. I've never seen it. Nobody's come to me in accountability and said, I love money. I don't know what to do. I've heard every sin under the sun be confessed and be told to me, but I can't recall someone coming to me to say, I think my greedy lust for money is harming my soul. I think my lust for money is harming my marriage and it's harming the people around me. No, I think the reason is because greed hides itself from the victim. A love for money is blinding to us. When the blindness of greed is seen in Luke 12, Jesus says, watch out. Be on guard against all kinds of greed. Look out. It's a remarkable statement, isn't it? Because Jesus doesn't say, watch, look out for other sins, like, say, adultery. It doesn't have to. When you're intimate with someone who's not your spouse, you know it. You don't stop several months down the road in the midst of an affair and go, wait a, wait a minute, wait a minute, I think this is adultery. I should stop. 
No, it just doesn't happen. No, with money, there's some blindness that happens with greed and with money. It's not so obvious. And so even though it's clear that the world is filled with greed and materialism, and that Dubai is a poster child for materialism, almost no one thinks it's true of them. We're in denial. Therefore, I want all of us to start with a working hypothesis this morning. And here it is. Here's the hypothesis. Here's what I want us to start with. That greed and money might be a problem for me right now. So that's what I want all of us to start with this morning. That greed and a love of money might be a problem for me right now. That's what I want us, each and every one of us, to start with this morning. Because if greed hides itself so deeply, then it could be a problem for any one of us. So this morning, even if you've never thought of it before, I want each of us to consider greed and money as we look at the story of the rich young ruler in the book of Mark. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. It's the second book of the New Testament. As we continue our study of the life and ministry of Jesus. So Mark chapter 10. Now it's been a heavy few weeks of preaching at Redeemer, hasn't it? (laughs) Two weeks ago I spoke on hell. Last week we spoke on divorce. And today we're going to talk about money. Now why am I preaching on all these topics? Is it because hell and money are my favorite topics of all time to preach on? Is it because I can't think of anything better to preach on than these No, the reason I'm preaching it is because it's what Jesus taught. I'm preaching it because we're moving through the Gospel of Mark expositionally. We're going passage by passage, verse by verse, which means we're teaching the point of each passage as the point of each sermon. And so that takes us this morning to the story of the rich young ruler. So look with me, I'll begin reading in verse 17 of chapter 10, and I'll read on through verse 31. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at these words, but Jesus said it again. Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The the disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Peter said to him, we have left everything to follow you. 
I tell you the truth, Jesus replied. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Well, in our passage this morning, we'll see two things about money. First, we'll see the danger of money. And then secondly, we'll look at how do we deal with this danger. So first, let's look at the danger of money. And we see in our story, we see this man approach Jesus. Matthew calls him young and Luke calls him a ruler. So this guy's at the top of the world. He's well known. He's young. He's successful. And shockingly, this ruler runs to Jesus and he bows down at his feet, which is shocking because remember the story of the prodigal son. Grown men don't run. It was undignified. It was embarrassing. And here this man runs and beyond that he bows down and he bows down to a man that the Jewish authorities were trying to kill. It would have been shocking to any bystander. And so this man bows down and he asks Jesus a question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a vulnerable question. On the outset, this guy, he he looks like a seeker, doesn't he? He looks like he's asking Jesus an honest question. He asks, in fact, the most important question in the world, the question that should be on all of our minds. What could be more important than to be concerned about eternal life? And yet this isn't true for the average person among us, the average person in the world, the Average person isn't sitting at Costa Coffee on their iPad Googling eternal life while sipping on a latte and enjoying the day. No, what are they thinking about? Maybe they're thinking about new shoes or trying to come up with something funny or creative to say on Facebook that'll make people laugh or maybe how they should have ordered a double shot of espresso instead. All these things perhaps are going through your mind as you go throughout the day. Eternal life isn't normally on our minds. It's certainly not on the minds of the people of this world. Friends, if you're here today and you've never considered how to receive eternal life, you are missing out on the most important thing in the world. How can I be forever with God in this life and in the life to come? At this point, this guy's kind of doing the right thing. At the same time, though, he's... He's asking the wrong question. He doesn't really understand who he is, and he doesn't really understand who Jesus is. He calls Jesus a good teacher. Jesus doesn't let that little compliment just kind of slide on by, because if he's just a teacher, if he's just like every other human being, he's not good. He's fallen. He's a sinner. He's unrighteous. The ruler is also confused about himself. Did you notice in the question his phrasing, what must I do? To receive eternal life. He's assuming there's something he can do to get it. And so Jesus says, okay, okay. I'll play your game. Let's let's see how you're doing. Let's have a little test. Don't you just love to be tested by Jesus? This This is scary. But here's a little test. Young man, how are you doing with my commandments? Have you kept them? Have you lied? Have you stolen? Have you robbed? Have you taken things that belong to other people? Have you committed adultery? 
Well, the man's answer is absolutely one of the most ridiculous statements in Mark. And I say that almost every week. There's been quite a few crazy statements, hasn't there? He goes, Jesus, <laughs> Jesus, I got this one. No problem here. I've kept all the commandments. Not today. Not currently. But since I was a wee little lad. Since I was a little kid. I've kept all your commandments. I don't know what he's expecting at this point. Is he expecting Jesus to give him high fives and to applaud? Good job, buddy. You kept my commandments. Hooray. Let's celebrate with the party. I don't, I don't know what he's expecting at this point. I mean, can you imagine standing before Jesus saying, adultery check, robbery check, lying check. I've, I've kept all of them. No problems here. I've kept them all. Standing in front of the king of the universe saying, I am righteous. I've even created a folder marked spiritual on my iPhone been memorizing verses and reading my Bible. I've even bought this big ESV study Bible that I like to lug around all around town. I've got it together. He's been working to earn God's favor. This guy's done pretty well, though. You don't see Jesus rebuke him instantly, do you? You don't see Jesus saying, no, 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 you have failed these things. No, apparently this guy's been a relatively moral guy. He's a pretty decent guy. And yet, don't you find it strange that though he's been a pretty good guy, he comes up to Jesus and says, what can I do for eternal life? The guy in our story looks good on the outside. He's got it together, but he's a bit troubled. He's worked for God's favor. And yet, here's the thing. Anyone who tries to work for God's favor will always doubt whether they've done enough to earn it. Right, we see this with the religions of the world. You're trying to climb this stairway of righteousness to heaven, and you never know, have I, have I done enough? Have I been good enough to earn God's favor? And there's always some doubt on the back of your mind. Is there something else that you can do? And so this is what this man is doing here. He's wondering, am I missing something? Is there something I haven't done, Jesus? Is there something that I need to do to earn eternal life? And Jesus says, as a matter of fact... There is something you can do. Go, sell all you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. But what happens next has got to be one of, the, one of the saddest, most pathetic scenes in all of Scripture. Here's this ruler bowing at the feet of Jesus, standing before the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the maker and sustainer of the universe, and he turns away from Jesus to go back to his money. Do you see that? He leaves Jesus to go back to his earthly riches. It's sad. It's pathetic. The word sad here is actually better translated grieve. The same word is used of Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane when Jesus started to sweat blood. It says he grieved in his distress. Why? Because Jesus knew he was about to experience the ultimate suffering. He was about to lose the joy of his life. He was going to lose the Father for a time and be separated from him. See, when Jesus called this young man to give up his money, the man started to grieve because money was for him what the father was for Jesus. It was the center of his identity. His money, his riches was his life. He didn't worship and love Jesus. He was clinging and holding on to this other God over here. Why is money dangerous? Because it makes us think that we don't need God. 
It takes over as our supreme satisfaction in this life. And so for this man, he just couldn't give it up. So Jesus says in verse 25, a shocking statement, he says, It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It's a scary statement. You'd have more luck trying to force a camel into a needle than trying to force a rich man into the kingdom. Well, some people say, well, Jesus isn't really talking about a literal needle here. I mean, come on, this would be impossible. And back in those days in Jerusalem, there were these little gates in the walls. It was hard to get a camel through. They could get stuck, and so you'd have to help them suck in their gut. You'd have to help them to kind of get their hump tucked under them, and then you'd have to get enough men behind them to kind of push through the camel, through the gates. Others say it's not really a camel, that there's an Aramaic word that means twine that's close to it here. And so maybe it's twine. It's difficult to get twine into an eye of a needle, but if you're patient enough, you can get it through. No, I think the text means exactly what it says it means. It's a metaphor. Jesus is illustrating to us here the fact that it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom. That's the, that's the point of the story. I think Christ is saying here money is dangerous. It blinds us to our need for God. It blinds us into thinking that we don't need God, that we're fine and sufficient on our own. No, money deceives us. So Jesus in verse 27 says, on our own, this is impossible. That no one with money will be saved without God's direct, miraculous intervention. It's impossible without a miracle. The disciples were stunned because in Jesus' day there was some erroneous thinking going on which continues on in some circles today that the rich are the ones blessed by God, that the rich are the godly ones. So the disciples were around that thinking, and they're wondering, well, if the rich can't make it, then how about me? How about anyone else? Does anyone have a chance? And the point is that Jesus is making is that without a miracle, all of us are dead. And without a miracle, the rich cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Without a miracle, we'll do exactly what King Solomon did in the passage that was read for us by Dick in Ecclesiastes. Solomon sought riches and pleasure and significance from the world all the days of his life but at the end of his life he says it was like chasing riches was like chasing the wind and the richest man around but it amounted to trying to grab the wind have you ever thought about how ridiculous it would be to run and chase after the wind how silly it would look to run around and try to grab it i mean the wind just goes right in and out of your arms you can't catch it Solomon says the pursuit of riches is just like that. It's ridiculous, it's fruitless, and will leave us empty-handed. It's a worthless pursuit. Now Solomon is saying in that passage, the more money you have, just the more money you want. The more you have, the less you're satisfied. The more you're worried about it, the more you'll leave behind. Now in our story today, the ruler didn't really want Jesus. Friend, if your money is keeping you from worshiping Jesus this morning, then you really don't want Jesus. Maybe you're even tempted to think that you don't need him because you're self-sufficient. Now, friends, that's the danger of money. It blinds us to the truth and makes us feel like we're sufficient apart from God. Money is utterly dangerous. It blinds us to the truth. So then how do we deal with this danger? 
And that's my second point. And I have three things that I want to mention here under how to deal with the danger of money. Three things this morning. The first is that in dealing with the danger, you have to deal with your heart. You have to deal with your heart. If you're going to keep money from having its power, you've got to get to the heart. Now, why does Jesus look at this man and is filled with love? Does Jesus love him because he was good? No, that's obviously not the case. No, when we look at a story like this, we need to put it into the context of the main storyline of the Bible. That every little passage we read needs to be put under the umbrella of the big story of the Bible. Well, think about it this way. Jesus is looking at a man that's kind of a, kind of a little bit like himself, doesn't he? Jesus himself is young. He's in his early 30s at this point. He's a rich young ruler, isn't he? John 1 says that he was there in the beginning of creation, and yet this rich young ruler gave it away. He left heaven to be born in a manger. He left heaven to be born in an inn and to walk on this earth among sinners. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says that this rich young ruler, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. No, in essence, Jesus could say, I'm a rich young ruler. I've had riches beyond what you could ever dream of, and I'm giving it all away for you. He's saying to the guy, saying to the ruler here, I'm not asking you to give up anything I haven't given up. You see, Jesus had a choice. If he stayed rich, we would die poor. If he died poor, then and only then could we become rich. He's telling the ruler, in fact, I am giving up everything. I'm just asking you to give up your earthly riches, these things that keep you from coming to me. Jesus is the ultimate rich young ruler. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I hope that this story resonates with you. See, Jesus didn't give up his heavenly glory and die on the cross for no reason. No, he did it to right a wrong. Because since the beginning of time, every man and every woman who was ever born has sinned against a perfect and a righteous God. We have all rejected him. We've all done exactly what this rich young ruler has done. We've rejected God for this world and we've worshipped and served the creation instead of the creator. We've all done it. And the Bible says that the consequences of this false worship of getting our identity from our things and our stuff in this world, the consequences of our sin is death and judgment. And yet in the eternal decrees and eternal plan of God, from before time began, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit decreed and determined that they would provide a way of restoration for us. That Jesus would come, that he'd give away, he'd give up his heavenly riches to become poor, to walk naked to his death to provide justice for our sins. Because justice had to be done. Sin against the holy God had to be dealt with. Either all of us die, every single one of us, or the one who has sinned against, the God who has sinned against, could provide the punishment by taking it himself. There is no other way. Now friends, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you will have no power to break the bondage of this worldly currency And worse, you put yourself in a position to miss out on heavenly riches. 
Rather than worshiping God fully for all eternity, you will condemn, condemn yourself to an eternity of suffering and judgment. Friends, I would encourage you to stop trusting in the world to save you. Stop trusting in your righteousness. Stop trusting in your money or your affluence to save you and to bring you joy. Because in the end, it will bring you no joy. You will leave all of it behind. No, Christ did in fact take the punishment that you deserve. God came in the flesh. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. And Jesus tells us that we can enjoy these heavenly riches, that we can be saved if we would repent of our ways, repent of our sin, turn and believe in Jesus to save us. He says if you do this, then his sacrifice becomes complete for you and you can enjoy an eternity with him. Oh, friends, do this today. Believe in Jesus. There is no better day to do this than today. You have no idea what tomorrow holds for you. Do it today. And fellow Christian, as you reflect on the story, do you see that the only way to conquer a love for money is when the gospel moves you and amazes you? But see, here's what's going to happen. Many of us will be convicted of this sermon. We'll say that we need to make some changes. But then when we wake up tomorrow morning, it'll all be gone. Tim Keller has said that that's because the gospel is not like a vaccination that you only need once. It's not like a shot in the arm that you do once to get all of your strength and wisdom. No, the gospel is more like a medicine that you take each morning. That you take it each morning to set your mind on things above, as Colossians 3 says. To set your heart on things above. It's a medicine that we give to ourselves every day, reminding ourselves of the generosity of Jesus in the gospel. Only then can the gospel and Jesus deal with the root of the power of money. Now lose your addiction to the riches of this world by gazing upon Christ as you start each day and as you move on through each day. Because if you don't, you'll say like this ruler, okay, Jesus, what can I do? I'm there for you. I love you. I want to be with you. But please don't touch this one aspect of my life. Just let it go. Please let my money just kind of go. Let me do my thing there. I'll give you all the rest of my life. I'll give you dominion over everything except this one area. No, Jesus wants all of you. Let him be the currency of your heart. Let him be your security. The way to reject finding your significance in money is to deal with your heart. That's the first thing. Deal with your heart. The second thing in dealing with the danger of money is to deal with your attitude. To deal with your attitude toward money. The big question here is, do you consider the money in your possession as your money? Money that you are free to do with whatever you please. In reality, God says otherwise. He says in Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Haggai 2, 8 the silver is mine, and the gold is mine. Now, God is clear in Scripture in those passages and dozens of others that we don't own anything, that we're just his money managers, his stewards. Our name is simply listed on God's account. If the rich young ruler had understood this, then it would have been easy for him to give the money away. If he had realized that it was God's money, it would have been easy for him just to say, okay, give it away gladly and joyfully to come follow you, Jesus. But instead, he lived as if his earthly riches were as good as it gets. 
No, our attitude needs to be that it's God's money and that we're living not for the riches of this world, but for the riches of the next world. I mean, imagine for a minute a simple illustration. If you're a business person and you're off on a business trip and you stay in a hotel for a couple months, you make some good money, you're there, but you're coming back. What do you do with your money for those two months? Do you spend your time and money decorating your hotel room better? You know, you buy some nice new plush rugs. You buy some beautiful wall hangings. You buy some pots and plants and lampstands, and you really deck the place out. Of course you would never do that. You'd always send your money up ahead to your permanent home. You'd never use it in this temporary residence. You'd only use whatever you needed to, and you'd send your treasures ahead. Now, friend, that's what our attitude should be with our money here on this earth. We should spend and save and give and do with our money here on this earth, with our next life, with heaven in mind. We should use our money on earth to build up treasures in heaven. So, friends, how is your attitude with money this morning? How are you doing? Do you struggle with envy towards others with lots of money and things? Do you worry about impressing people with your nice stuff? No, the gospel frees us from worrying about people making more money than us or people having more toys than us because God provides everything we need in Christ. Do you worry about saving enough? Is this a concern that you'll have a big enough nest egg, you'll have a big enough bank account? No, the gospel frees us from getting our security from our account. It relieves us from hoarding money and from filling up bank account after bank account. We often worry about having too little money. But God warns us here that we should worry about having too much money. That's his real concern for our lives. I mean, do you see the difference? We save wisely, but we relinquish the attitude that our security is in our account and not in Christ. Well, do you love new things? Is this often on your mind? Does buying new things cheer you up when you're depressed? Does the mall cure a weekly case of depression? Well, the gospel frees us from getting pleasure in our stuff because we have received greater wealth in Jesus. He is our treasure, and he is ultimately our only cure for discouragement and depression. Well, how about this? Do you take on careless debt? You take on careless debt because when we take on unwise debt, what we're doing is we're taking money that God has not given us to steward. I encourage you to reject the lie of Dubai that says, buy now, play today and pay tomorrow. Buy now, get it today and you'll make these easy little monthly installments. There'll be no problem for you. You know, we see that when we look at new cars and when we look at new big flat screen TVs. And the lie is, buy it today and these monthly payments will be, be fine. Well, we all know that there's nothing easy about those monthly payments, is there? They keep coming month after month after month. There is potentially a time to take a loan, but when we take debt for unwise reasons, what you're essentially telling God is, God, your provision isn't good enough for me. I need more than you know, and since you failed to provide for me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take matters into my own hands. No, we need to trust that Christ's provision is sufficient. And we need to never presume that you can pay off your debt tomorrow. You have no idea what tomorrow holds for you. 
Now, if you consider money on earth as God's money, then your attitude will change and you will begin to live for what does matter. Heavenly treasure, that which moths and rust will not destroy. I love what John Piper says the purpose of money is for Christians. I love this quote. I've adopted it. Our family has adopted it. He says this, that the reason God gave us money, and I know there are lots of reasons God gave us money, but listen to this. The reason God gave us money is so that we could show the world that Jesus is more important to us than our money. It's to testify to the world that Jesus means more to us than our money. I mean, friends, do you see that how in this dark land as Christians, how we can magnify Christ and the gospel by showing the world that we love Jesus more than our funds? That we love Jesus more than our things, more than our stuff. Do you see how that would shine so brightly even here in Dubai? That Jesus is everything to us. Friends, does the way you deal with money show the world that you love Jesus more than money? Do you magnify Christ in your saving and in your spending and giving? Is Jesus more important to you than your money? If not, then you need to deal with your heart and you need to deal with your attitude. And the third thing is you need to deal with your giving. You need to deal with your giving. I would encourage you not to set aside, I would encourage you to set aside the mentality that if you give a certain percentage, then God will be off your case for the rest of the money. That you can use all the rest of your funds in any way that you please. Now, Jesus tells the rich young ruler to give away everything. In Luke 19, Jesus tells Zacchaeus to give 50% to the poor. Now, the point is, give whatever God leads you to give generously. Don't say, well, I give my 10% and God has nothing to say about the other 90. Here I go. No, reject that notion. It's interesting, the word tithe actually means a tenth. Anything less, according to the Old, Old Testament, is not a tithe. There in the Old Testament times, it was a requirement to give 10% to the priests for the religious establishment. And in fact, Randy Alcorn points out that there were two other tithes, a 10% tithe each year for the religious festival and another 10% tithe every third year to the poor. And on top of that, there were religious voluntary offerings. So you would give at least 23% of your income away every year. So what does that mean for us today? The New Testament isn't quite as specific as a 10% tithe to the religious establishment still in place. Now, there is some disagreement uh, on this matter. We had some good discussion in our God and Money class that went on a few weeks ago on this, and there's difference of opinions. But I want to tell you what I think this means for us today. Here's what I would say regarding one's tithe. I would wonder how one could argue that now that Christ has come and that Christ has died, that our giving should be less than the people of the Old Testament. Now, this side of the cross, we should be moved to even greater generosity as we look at what Jesus has done for us in the cross. The cross should move us beyond that. Jesus gave us everything. I would say that our giving should be at, at least this Standard And the 10% might serve as a good baseline, as a good starting point for giving. But the bottom line, the bottom th line of what I want to get across today is that the cross should transform our giving. 
It should move us to give regularly, even when the creditors are knocking at our door. Never stop giving to God. We don't eat out, we work extra hours, but we don't stop giving. If you think you can't afford to tithe, ask yourself this. If, if my income was reduced by 10%, would I die? Kind of a goofy question. Of course, the answer is no. We've all taken pay cuts, reduction of salaries, and we've survived. We make adjustments. Now, when the Israelites didn't give their tithe, God called them out in the book of Malachi. And he charged them with robbing God. Now, friend, I don't tell you this about giving because the church needs more money. God will always provide for us. No, I tell you this for the sake of your own soul. Friend, I don't want you to rob God. Oh, would God help us to not rob the maker and creator and sustainer of the universe? Would we as a church be faithful to give to God what's his and to live with the rest of it as if it is his because it really is. It is all his. No, the gospel moves us to give cheerfully to God. I mean, if you're a parent, it's a joy to give to your kids and to see their reactions when, they give a, when you give a gift, isn't it? It's, it's a joy to see their faces. We take pictures and video. But the joy should be far greater when you give to God, knowing that he is pleased in your gift, that he delights in a cheerful giver. No, the gospel means that we have to deal with our heart, that we have to deal with our attitude and we have to deal with our giving. These are our antidotes to deal with the danger of money. Well, our passage ends not quite yet, but it ends with some amazing news, doesn't it? That God loves the one who gives sacrificially so much that he promises to reward his people. I love this. Verse 29 says that there is no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or field for me in the gospel who won't receive 100-fold. Now, Jesus isn't advocating a kind of prosperity gospel by advocating a get-rich-quick-through-Christian-giving scheme. No, it's not that if you sacrifice to Jesus, he'll make you rich. No, in fact, Jesus even says that there will be persecution Christian life isn't a utopia without suffering. It's not an insurance policy against pain and poverty. No, there will be difficulty. There will be pain. But if you sacrifice, Jesus says, he will meet every single one of your needs. Do you see that? He'll provide all the family you need. You've left one father and one mother and a few siblings in a home, and yet he promises to give you, in Christ, countless fathers, countless mothers, brothers and sisters and children, and homes and lands in any part of the world you go. Because as a Christian, you are bonded with brothers and sisters in Christ, and you will be received as family wherever you go. You will have everything you need. See, the point is clear here at the end. Jesus is saying, make sacrifices now, give up earthly riches because they do not compare with what you will receive in the community of faith now as a Christian and even more so in heaven in the life to come. Because in heaven we will have all heavenly riches beyond our wildest dreams and imagination and comprehension. And in the center of that, the greatest treasure of all time will be Jesus Christ himself. And we'll be there with him, worshiping him for all eternity. The one who has saved us, the one who gave up his riches to become poor to die for us, the one who gave us his very life will be there. 
No, friends, fight the blinding danger of money. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. Deal with your heart, deal with your attitude, and deal with your giving, and you will be rewarded in this age and in the age to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your extraordinary generosity in Christ. We thank you for his sacrifice and his love for us. We are astounded by his grace. We pray, Father, that our significance would come in Christ alone. That our joy would come from Christ alone. That our peace and confidence would come from the finished work of Christ alone. Father, help us. Oh, Lord, help us here in Dubai. Help us to find our significance in you, Father. Father, for those who are last shall be first. Father, we pray this for us. Father, that we would give sacrificially, that we would use and spend our money and give our money in a manner worthy of the gospel, that here in this land revival would break out because people would see us have joy in Christ and not the things of this world. Father, help us. Guide us. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Jesus, before dying on the cross, commanded Christians to remember his death on the cross regularly by observing the Lord's Supper. And so we now turn to celebrate this most holy ordinance. The Lord's Supper symbolizes the sacrifice of Christ's death on the cross. It's a visual display of the generosity of Jesus as he poured out his life for us. So as you approach communion today, meditate on the fact that Jesus spared no expense to bring you to the Father. He left his heavenly riches to come down to earth. He was born in humble conditions. He lived an ordinary life. He took ridicule and beatings from people he created. He was crucified in humiliation between two thieves. He became poor so that we might become rich. And so as we put this bread to our mouths and as we drink this cup, we are proclaiming something as Christians. We are recounting to the world that we deserve not this love, but that in the most central event in all human history, Christ left heaven. He came to earth to die to bring us to God. So if you're a Christian this morning and you are trusting in Christ's righteousness and you are repenting of your sin, we invite you to take part in this meal this morning. But if you're holding on to some sin that you just refuse to repent of, I urge you, let the bread and let the cup pass you by. Repent to God, reconcile yourself to him and anyone else, and look forward to taking part in the Lord's Supper the next time we celebrate it. If you're here and you're not a Christian, if you've not repented of your sin and placed your faith in Jesus, I'd encourage you to think about this today, to think about Christ's generous sacrifice on your behalf. But I urge you to let the bread and cup pass you by, for 1 Corinthians 11 says this, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Now before we take part, let us 
take just a couple moments of private reflection to consider what Jesus has done on our behalf and to reflect on our own lives to see if we might take part in the Lord's Supper in a manner honorable to God.